1: turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And, you know, if you get stuck, as we do, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. They fall down
0: the middle of the
1: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode
0: 136. <laughs> I've always been interested in the ways that uh, the most fundamental processes in people's brains, you know, how we see, how we interpret information in front of us, all that low-level stuff connects to kind of more high-level difficult decisions and concepts that we think about and all the usual stuff that we think of as uh, thinking and, you know, going about our lives. So anytime that uh, there's a connection between... um, you know, low level stuff and high level stuff in the brain and behavior, that gets me very excited. That's psychologist David Lavari. So, my name is David Lavari, and I'm a social psychologist. I research human behavior, and right now I'm based at Harvard University in the psychology department in the business school there.
1: Earlier this year, Lavari, along with his colleagues Daniel Gilbert, Timothy Wilson, Bo Sievers, David Amadio, and Thalia Wheatley, produced a study that revealed just the sort of thing he loves to research—a connection between the way we process information in general to the way we approach larger phenomena like institutions, social problems, and everything, from war to policing to teaching a musical instrument. Lavari and his team found evidence for something they call prevalence-induced concept change. When we set out to change the world by reducing examples of something we have deemed problematic and we succeed, a host of psychological phenomena can mask our progress and make those problems seem intractable, as if we're only treading water when, in fact, we've created the change we set out to make. To understand what this means... We need to build up to the idea by first discussing another idea in psychology called
0: creep. Yeah, so creep is definitely not a term that we came up with. It's a term that's been used for a long time to describe any situation in which kind of um, a concept or a a set of goals or um, really anything at all kind of grows or uh, shifts its boundary outward over time. In the military... This is called mission creep.
1: When a unit enters a country with a narrow set of goals, over time, the scope of the effort expands to include goals that had never been considered part of the original mission. Or in technology and software development, they
0: call this feature creep. Um, You can start out with a product or a piece of software that does one very narrow thing, like plays songs. And then over time, you just inevitably kind of end up adding more and more bells and whistles and features to it that make it uh, slower and uh, takes longer to come to market and more complicated.
1: A few years ago, a psychologist named Nick Haslam wrote a paper that introduced another form of this phenomenon he called concept creep. The idea that not only do missions and products and software start with narrow goals and then expand in scope over time, but So do ideas, abstractions, and definitions. Concepts, he said, undergo semantic shifts. The boundaries of concepts creep outward over time, the more familiar we become with them. And they begin to include a broader range of examples as we begin to notice the
0: signals in the noise. So, for example, um, something that a lot of uh, psychologists study is bullying, it's always something to worry about, And a few decades ago, bullying was mostly considered, you know, the the basic definition of bullying was like, if I pushed you over in the playground, that was bullying. It was physical um, harassment among kids. Concept creep expands in two directions.
1: Horizontally, it encompasses new phenomena that we begin to see as examples of the concept that we didn't see as examples before. And vertically, it creeps downward, encompassing less extreme phenomena that we once didn't think of as examples of the original concept. The category in our minds, in our shared consensus reality, dilates, covering more of our
0: overall conceptual framework than it did in the past. So with bullying, for example, um, bullying now, you can also think about adult bullying in the workplace, or emotional bullying, or cyber bullying. So it's not um, always automatically considered a problem, but it's just uh, 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 the way in which, as Haslam observed, it seems like a lot of these concepts just kind of tend to kind of naturally and incrementally grow bigger over time uh, without anyone necessarily trying to do that on purpose. Concept creep is a
1: natural phenomenon and it's neither good nor bad. It's just what happens when brains spend a lot of time interacting with other brains trying to make sense of the world. They argue about what's right and wrong and they work together to try and reach common goals and our concepts of those things that we're talking about, they expand. One of my favorite examples is the concept of dignity. In Kwame Anthony Appiah's book, The Moral Code, he shows that in the 1500s, people in the West shared a concept of dignity that said some people just had more of it than others. Defined as the state of deserving respect from others, to a person in the 1500s, it was literally unthinkable that a person who made candles out of animal fat had as much dignity as a king. But After the Industrial Revolution, certain members of the working class had accumulated great wealth, and they demanded more of a say in politics. And as they got that say, their newfound respect led to a widening of the idea of dignity. And once it encompassed class, it expanded to encompass gender, and then race, and then all of humanity. Once we agreed that every person deserves respect and has dignity by the virtue of their humanity, ideas like slavery and child labor and so on became difficult to accept as a new form of cognitive dissonance spread through the culture.
0: When we're talking about concepts that creep, um, that can range from very uh, specific kind of narrow, simple things. Like in our case, some of our studies were on the concept of uh, what a color is, like the color blue, to what you described, which is a a much more uh, complicated and rich and uh, um, um, almost philosophical concept, like something like dignity.
1: So that's concept creep. But there's another feature of human cognition that complicates things, and that's our tendency to make evaluations of degree or kind not on an objective standard, but by using
0: comparisons. Yeah, so this is probably one of the most uh, fundamental and uh, oldest findings in psychological research, uh, which is basically that when your brain is looking at something, when you're looking at something and evaluating it in any way trying to decide how big or small it is how much you like it or not anything you're not like a a computer that has a reliable objective rating of it every single time Um, your ratings will change over time based on things about you and they'll also change based on your surroundings Uh, so one example um, is about how heavy things feel Um, there's some classic research in which um, for example if you hold something very very heavy and then you hold something light um, the lighter thing will seem way lighter than it would have if you hadn't held the heavy thing first. So that's an example of how you're judging how heavy something is in part compared to uh, the heaviness of the things you held before, not like a scale would, which it would just give you the same pounds or um, kilos every single time.
1: We can also see examples of this in optical illusions like the tilt illusion, in which perfectly straight lines appear normal until surrounded by lines at an angle. When the brain looks at these lines in an angled context, they appear as if they shift a bit, and they angle in the opposite direction from the surrounding lines. In short, brains are not objective. They make sense of the world by judging phenomena in comparison to surrounding phenomena. And this leads us to another aspect of psychology. Comparison of phenomena also occurs when we notice their relative
0: prevalence. Okay, so when something becomes more rare over time, what does that mean in terms of its context? Because like we just said, it seems like brains judge things according to their context. In one of
1: Lavari's previous studies, he asked subjects to identify threatening faces. Now, when we're asked to do something like this, if we see only one face, we judge it based on our internal estimation of what that face looks like in comparison to some imaginary example of threatening or non-threatening faces. But in the study, people saw face after face after face, one after the other. And what they found was that if people were shown a series of non-threatening faces and then a slightly threatening one appeared after that, people would rate that face as much more threatening than if they had seen a series of highly threatening faces before they saw that same image. Whether or not the face was identified as threatening depended not only on some inherent quality, but on how it compared to other faces in their recent memory.
0: So in the world where threatening faces are very rare, um, any threatening face is going to look more threatening than it would have in the world where there were a lot of threatening faces. There's an example of this from my personal life, which is that uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is a city, but uh, a pretty friendly smaller city kind of in the Midwest, not quite the east coast of the United States. Um, And it's a pretty friendly place. You know, it's pretty normal there to walk down the street and uh, smile at people. And um, one thing I experienced when I moved to a big city, I went to school in Chicago, um, is that uh, there were fewer people smiling on the sidewalk. It was still a great town, but there just weren't as many people smiling at each other when I would walk down the street. So what I noticed for me personally was that what I would count as a smiling person on the street, a friendly person, was a way more liberal definition in Chicago than it was in Pittsburgh because I was seeing fewer and fewer friendly people. So even someone who looked kind of friendly um, seemed uh, way friendlier than they would have in Pittsburgh where everybody was smiling.
1: So when these three psychological phenomena combined, concept creep evaluation by comparison and the change in prevalence over time brains do something very odd and to demonstrate this in the lab lavari and his team came up with a really nifty experiment and you'll hear all about it after this commercial break If you're looking to make the most of your downtime and learn something new, start streaming the great courses plus learn from bright, engaging experts about interesting topics like human behavior, logic, math, science, even how to draw with over 10,000 different lectures. There's always something new to explore. And I recommend checking out their course, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Techniques, Retraining Your Brain. It's an interesting look at how to train your brain to become more motivated, break bad habits, and get a better grip on your emotions. With this course, you get 24 lectures. They're about 30 minutes long each, and they're about all sorts of stuff. Anger and rage, treating depression, anxiety and fear, stress and coping. And plus, you get the history of cognitive behavioral therapy and how to set goals and reach those goals using the techniques, procedures, and ideas in CBT. And here's the thing. The Great Courses Plus is giving today's listeners to this podcast a fantastic limited-time offer. You get your first month free. Now, a month of The Great Courses lets you put so much stuff into your brain, including this entire course, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy course. But you also now get your second month for just 99 cents. That's unlimited access to enjoy their huge library of engaging lectures for two full months for less than a dollar. To get this exclusive offer, and just do this, this is a crazy thing not to do, a dollar for two months of 10,000 lectures? Do this. Go to my URL at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. This special offer gets you the first month free second month for 99 cents and it's only available for a limited time for you people who listen to this podcast at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart three times to put it in your brain sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart you know hiring used to be hard you had multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, confusing review process. But today, hiring can be very easy. And you only have to do one thing. Go to this place called ziprecruiter.com slash Not so smart. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards and scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience to apply to your positions. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great catch. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. I know you're going to love ZipRecruiter.com because if you're hiring people, you want the best people, the smartest people. You want people who are well-vetted and you believe in the future. You believe in using technology to get your aims. You trust the algorithms. ZipRecruiter has done the hard work so you don't have to. And with results like that, you know it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash not so smart. I'm going to tell it to you two more times because I want your neurons to fire appropriately. It's ziprecruiter.com slash N-O-T-S-O-S-M-A-R-T. That's ziprecruiter.com slash not so smart. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we're talking to psychologist David Lavari about prevalence-induced concept change. And right before the break, he was about to tell us about his study.
0: So in our first study, what we really wanted to know was if we took a very, very simple concept, almost the simplest concept we could think of, could we change people's um, threshold for it? Could we change their boundaries that they drew around the concept just by changing its prevalence, how common or rare it was? So what we did in our study was we brought participants into the lab and uh, we showed them a 1,000 colored dots on a computer screen one at a time. It was a super boring study. They were just looking at dots, and for each dot they saw, Um, They had to hit one of two buttons. They had to decide, is this dot that I'm looking at on the screen blue or is it not blue?
1: Some of the dots were very blue and some were very purple. And the rest
0: were varying shades in between. And so they were looking at these dots, one after another, deciding this one's blue, this one's purple, this one's blue, this one's purple. And what we did is for, for half of the people in the study, over time we slowly decreased the prevalence of the blue dots. We decreased the amount of blue dots they were seeing over time.
1: For half of the subjects, without their knowledge, the dots very gradually changed in prevalence. At the beginning, half of the dots were blue. By the end, only
0: 5% were blue. So if you were in our study and if you were in that condition from your perspective, what it would feel like over time is you were just kind of running out of blue dots to find. Um, They would become very rare. And what we wanted to see was, would just that mere fact of the blue dots becoming rare change which colors people called blue? So what we found uh, was kind of shocking to us, was that as the number of blue dots uh, decreased, people started calling a wider range of colors blue. In other words, they started calling colors blue that they wouldn't have called blue in the earlier part of the study when blue was very common.
1: If you think of these two groups as living in two different realities, one in which blue remained common and one in which, over time, blue dots became rare, one began to Changed their own definitions of what is and is not blue, so that these two groups of people soon had completely different concepts of something that isn't abstract or socially constructed. In other words, they came to disagree at the level of perception itself on something that we would normally consider an aspect of objective reality. And all it took was a small change to their environment. And when it came to color itself, after that change, They couldn't see eye to eye.
0: Another way I like to think about it is if you were in our study and you were in the condition when blue dots became rare over time, imagine you saw a dot that was very ambiguous. It was a color like right between blue and purple, hard to categorize. So basically what we found was at the beginning of the study, when blue dots were very common, you would probably call that color purple. And then by the end of the study, when blue dots became very rare, that's you, the same person, seeing that same color, would all of a sudden call it blue.
1: Lavari and his team wondered, could prevalence-induced concept change also change the way people judged concepts like morality and ethics? So they spent a summer creating fake descriptions of studies that ranged from innocuous to, well,
0: unethical. So one example was uh, participants are going to um, be asked to lick a frozen piece of fecal matter. (laughs) <laughs> and we're going to measure the amount of mouthwash that they use. After. That's so great. again, these aren't, these aren't real studies. There's no, there were, I can't think of any reason you would ever run that study. The idea was in, in the same way that we had this kind of continuum of dots ranging from very purple to very blue, we in a similar way wanted to create a continuum of hypothetical studies ranging from very ethical and kind of uh, boring to very unethical uh, and controversial.
1: In the same way they had with the dots, they had subjects rate the studies as either ethical or unethical. And for each one, they had to choose to either accept or reject it as if they were members of a review board. But for one group, the number of unethical studies in the mix was slowly reduced over time.
0: As we slowly decreased the amount of unethical studies you were seeing, you started calling studies unethical that you wouldn't have before. So in other words, you expanded your concept of what counted as an unethical study um, just because you were seeing fewer unethical studies over time.
1: Lavari and his team showed that if we set out to reduce the number of examples of something in the world, something we feel is problematic, harmful, or dangerous, as we achieve that goal and we see fewer and fewer examples of that thing, Thanks to the psychological phenomena we've described so far, the concept expands to include instances that it previously excluded. And that, as they say, masks the
0: magnitude of its own decline. In the act of expanding your definition of something, of for example, calling a wider range of faces threatening, um, what that would seem to do is it would change your perception of how many threatening faces you're seeing. Um, And we think that that can be pretty important in domains in which uh, it's your job to uh, change something's prevalence. Uh, So, for example, um, imagine that uh, you worked in the TSA at the airport and you were in charge of uh, uh, handling security and making sure dangerous people didn't come to the airport. Part of your job is, uh, for example looking out for suspicious people um, that you think uh, might be a danger that you have to pull over for secondary screening. So, of course, the most important thing you need to do is catch those people. But when you think about it, another part of your job is to reduce the prevalence of those people over time, right? If you're doing uh, your job well as the security officer, um, then fewer people are going to come to the airport who are dangerous uh, because they're going to know, oh, I'm going to get caught. So part of your job is to reduce the prevalence of this thing you're looking for. But what our research suggests, if it applies to a situation like that, is that as you're doing a good job of finding suspicious people at the airport and reducing their prevalence, then in a way that's probably not conscious or intentional, you're gonna respond by uh, perceiving and calling a wider range of people threatening than you used to. So even as you're doing a good job reducing the amount of threatening people coming to the airport, Um, you're going to see a wider range of them than they used to, and you may not realize how well you're doing at your job.
1: Again, prevalence-induced concept change is neither good nor bad. It's just something that brains do. In some cases, it's clearly very, very good. There are some social problems for which we have decided we must remain vigilant, and our goal is to reduce them to zero, to eradicate them from our societies. And to do that, over time, it's necessary that we become less tolerant of instances of those problems that, in a previous era,
0: may have been considered acceptable or benign. Uh, So I can give you an example. Imagine that uh, you teach little kids how to play the violin, and uh, as part of your job, you have uh, kind of an idea in mind, a concept of what counts as them playing a note out of tune, like a note that's flat or sharp, and, you know, part of the way you make them better at the violin is you point out to your students when they're playing a note that's flat or sharp. So what happens, imagine you have lesson after lesson with these students that you're teaching, and over time, uh, they're playing fewer and fewer notes out of tune uh, because you're teaching them uh, how to play more in tune. So what you might do then, quite reasonably, is um, you might expand your definition of what counts as a note that's out of tune uh, to point out things to them like a note that's a little bit flat or sharp that you wouldn't have cared about on the first lesson that they had. Um, And that's not being inconsistent or irrational that's refinement. That's an important part of teaching. As, as the thing that you're trying to get rid of, flatter sharp notes, gets rarer and rarer, um, you'll point out these edge cases that you wouldn't have cared about before. That totally makes sense. Um, so there are plenty of examples where um, changing your concept when the prevalence changes, we think, uh, can be a good and useful thing. Here's the problem. I think there are also a lot of domains in life in which it's important to try to be consistent over time, right? So imagine... If you're an umpire in a baseball game um, or an oncologist uh, deciding uh, whether something on an x-ray is a tumor or not. So in both of those cases, you know, what you call a ball or a strike or what you call a tumor, that should be a pretty consistent decision. And hopefully um, it's not largely determined by how many balls or strikes you've seen as an umpire that day or how many tumors you've seen that day as an oncologist. So we think there are a lot of domains in which it's important to be consistent over time. And if prevalence is changing those domains We think that uh, people would want to know about it. The most important implication of this research, Lavari says,
1: is that for domains in which we are looking to make change to reduce instances of a social problem or something else that we consider harmful, dangerous, or unethical, is that prevalence-induced concept change masks how good of a job we're doing. That can make it feel as if our efforts are going nowhere. It creates a skewed view of the world in which things that are definitely for sure on the decline, like violent crime, poverty, homelessness, teenage pregnancy, illiteracy, obesity, disease, and so on, it makes them seem like problems that we can never solve or problems that are getting worse. In communication studies, this is called the mean world syndrome. Since the news only ever reports on things that are newsworthy, and often those things are out of the ordinary or threatening or sensational, the number of those things on the news remains constant no matter the actual rate of those things in the real world, which means the more news you consume, the less realistic your conception of the prevalence of the things on which the news chooses to report. Add to that the very good and noble and worthwhile efforts of those who wish to stamp out the ills of the world and who point to examples of those ills on social media, well, the more you consume social media, the worse the world seems. You can see why, in a recent survey, when 20,000 people were asked, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? In Sweden, only 10% said it was getting better. In America, only 6% said it was. And in Australia, only 3%. But the truth is, In many areas, though there is still plenty of work to be done, and in some places there are huge, huge social problems, things are getting much better. Our efforts to change the world are working. Now, that doesn't give us permission to become blindly optimistic or to scale back our efforts, but the statistics should give us reason to think that change is absolutely possible. And that if our goal is to make the world a healthier, safer, more educated, and less violent place, we can do that. We shouldn't let the psychologically skewed realities of the mean world syndrome or
0: prevalence-induced concept change dissuade us. It would be a shame if we made a lot of progress. Um, at addressing problems, um, but then didn't realize it um, and kind of abandoned our efforts because by getting rid of it, to some extent, we see it in more places. Um, we just hope that to the extent that we make people aware that uh, the prevalence of the thing you're looking for might be a factor and um, how you see it, um, that that can uh, keep people from um, re- not realizing uh, when they're doing a good job at finding something or solving a problem. And the reason that's important that is even if you think there's a lot of progress we still have to make in a lot of areas of, uh, life. Um, it's important to recognize when things we're trying are working because then you can keep doing them and put more effort and resources into them. So, um, to the extent that changing people, the prevalence makes that harder to see, it's something we would want people to know about.
1: David Lavari is a psychologist at Harvard. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. If you'd like to find links to everything that we talked about, including some images of the dots, the blue dots and the purple dots, you can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find previous episodes. You can find those previous episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the show. At NotSmart blog on Twitter, or you can follow me at David McRaney. It's also on Facebook at slash You Are Not So Smart. If you would like to support this one person operation, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any level gets you the show ad free, but at the higher levels, you can get t shirts, signed books, posters, all sorts of cool stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Incompetech. You can find those people at incompetech.com. This music is Banjo-pocalypse. I just turned in the manuscript for my new book, How Minds Change. More on that very soon. So if you'd like to book me for a speaking engagement, I am so available for that now. Just email me. We'll talk about it. All right. New stuff coming soon. New shows coming soon. I'll see you then. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know What is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S.